All right, open your Bibles up to John chapter 3. We have a little bit more to cover in chapter 3 this morning. We, we did the first uh, 21 verses last week. If you uh, have one of our uh, uh, Bibles from the side of the room over there, uh, it's on page 943. Um, by the way, um, if you grabbed one of those Bibles and you don't have a Bible or you, or you have a different Bible or whatever, go ahead and keep that. There's an there's a insert in the front of it that helps you walk through, kind of gets you familiar with that Bible itself and, and then helps you uh, uh, think through uh, uh, how, to, how to read it, how to study it, and how to do that over and over and over, not by yourself but with others. So um, if you grab one and you need it, take it. That's why they're there, okay? Page 943 in those Bibles. We're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. It's the rest of the chapter. In this passage, John the gospel writer is, is shifting focus from Nicodemus to John the Baptist, okay? And while it may seem at first glance that these two stories are unrelated, the one that we talked about last week with Nicodemus and the one that we're going to see today with John the Baptist, John the gospel writer will then tie them both together at the very end with a, with a summary. And so we'll want to keep Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in mind as we work our way through these verses today and through the words of both John the Baptist and John the gospel writer. We're going to see that true joy comes when Christ is in his rightful place in our lives. And so before we read the word of the Lord together, I want to pray and ask the Lord to direct our time. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your church. We can gather together around your word in the power of your spirit with our eyes joyfully fixed on your son for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's everybody's favorite time of the year when we're all bombarded by political ads where candidates try to make their opponents look really bad and themselves look really good, right? They try to increase their own chances of, of, of being voted into office, being elected, and decrease the chances of their opponents. And we laugh and we giggle and we probably roll our eyes at that because it feels more like a, 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 often more like a high school popularity contest than an actual political race, right? They're making it about themselves instead of the people that they're promising to serve. But when we laugh, when we roll our eyes at them, what are we really doing? Aren't we actually doing the very same thing that, that made us roll our eyes in the first place? Aren't we making ourselves look good by making them look bad? Aren't we trying to increase our own integrity by decreasing theirs? Maybe not always, but I would bet that most of us have been guilty of that at some point. It's pretty easy when they, they do a good job of making themselves look really bad, right? Because sin lives inside of us all, though, we need to remember that we're all prone to want to make everything about ourselves at the expense of others. It's all about me, right? We might not say that out loud, but, but that's, that's often how we, we have to wrestle against that, at least, as we live our lives. But when it comes to our relationship with Christ, we need to understand this. There will never come a time, never come a time in our lives where we must increase and Jesus must decrease, not one time will, there ever, will we ever be able to say that, right? And we know this. 
But this is the reality that we need to be reminded of this morning. If we proclaim to follow Christ, if we proclaim him as our Lord and our Savior, then he must increase and we must decrease. We know this. We, we, we say this. We shake our heads yes to this. But we need to see this again and again and again. And by God's grace, he's going to allow us to do that in his word this morning. This means that, that we must always make more of Jesus than we do of ourselves. Why? Because this is a matter of glory. It's a matter of supremacy. It's, it's an exaltation of him over ourselves. While it's true that the Bible says that we as believers are co-heirs with Christ and will one day rule and reign with him and we can rejoice in that, we can dwell on that because the Bible says it, it's true, it's going to happen. The Bible also says that he alone is king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is forever first. Jesus is forever first. And that reality ought to shape how we live as followers of him. In our passage today, we're going to see these things. Christ must be exalted through his people. Christ is exalted above all people. And Christ will exalt his people through himself. Christ must be exalted through his people. Christ is exalted above all people. And Christ will exalt his people through himself. So let's dig in together this morning. This is the unchanging word of the Lord. John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where they, he spent time with them and baptized. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about uh, purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Jesus and John were both baptizing people, although not in the same area. In chapter 4, we'll see that it was actually Jesus' disciples who were doing the baptizing and not Jesus. All of this was taking place before John the Baptist was thrown into prison and eventually beheaded. John the Gospel writer doesn't elaborate on that, on that here. He just assumes that his readers know that. Okay? that that's, a, that's a part of the history. They've, they've learned. They've understood this. That We're already familiar with the details. At some point while John the Baptist is baptizing people, his disciples got into an argument with a, with a Jewish uh, uh, leader, uh, um, possibly a Pharisee, over purification rites. Have you ever gotten into a conversation with someone about something and then that sparked a deeper thought that shifted the conversation in a new direction and before you know it, the, the thing that you were originally talking about becomes less important, really not even important at all compared to the new thing that's on your mind? You start with one thing and it takes you to a completely different place. Their dispute with the Jew over purification rites fell to the wayside as John's disciples turned their minds toward the rising tension that they felt between John's public ministry and Christ's public ministry. And that tension is heightened actually for us when we read how they address John in verse 26. Did you catch it? They called him Rabbi. Rabbi, just like Nicodemus came to Jesus and called Jesus Rabbi. 
In fact, in John's entire gospel, this is the only time that someone else other than Jesus is addressed by that title. And Jesus himself is addressed as rabbi seven times. You remember John's love for sevens? He uses sevens all over the place in, his, in all, all, a lot of his writings in the New Testament because it's a sign of completeness, of fullness. What he's, what he's telling us in his gospel, and, and even by, by calling uh, or, uh, uh, referencing that they called um, John the Baptist rabbi here, but Jesus seven times, is that Jesus is the rabbi of rabbis. He's the teacher of teachers. There's no one that compares to him. There's no one that passes him. John the Baptist's disciples came to their rabbi, and they essentially said, hey, do you realize that you're losing disciples? You're losing disciples to the one that you told people about. Why is he getting all the attention? Don't you care that he's going to put you out of business? In verse 26, they said that everyone was going to Jesus. This is hyperbole, right? They were overlooking the fact that large swaths of people were coming to John still and being baptized by him. Verse 23 just told us that. People were going to him. They're like, they're not even looking at them. Probably pushing their way through him to get to John to say, hey, you got a leak, brother. You're draining disciples faster than you're gaining them. Their tone is one of frustration and bitterness. They may as well have told John, look, don't you see This guy was a nobody until you made him a somebody. Until you told people about him. Now he's repaying you by taking your followers. What kind of thanks is that? And John was like, yeah. You know what? You're right. Let's go get him. That's not how John's, that's not what he said, right? Let's look at what he actually said. Verse 27. John responded, no one can receive anything. Literally, not even one thing. No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase and I must decrease. Just as he saw Jesus redirect, or just as we saw Jesus redirect Nicodemus from earthly things to heavenly things last week. Even now, as as they started with a a dispute over purification, and now they're coming and talking about disciples, John takes their conversation in in an even uh, deeper and, and more important direction. Guys, it's not about the things. It's not about the things that you're talking about. You speak of earthly things. It's about heavenly things. John was quick to correct his disciples' line of thinking in verse 27. It wasn't he who gave Jesus everything. It was God who gave John everything. No one can receive anything, not even one thing, unless it has been given to him from heaven, John said. In other words, how can I, how can I take credit for all that Jesus has if I can't even take credit for what I have? It was given to me. I'm not a self-made man. I'm a sent man. 
In our culture today, it's easy for us to fall into the trap of believing the opposite, right? That, that we are not sent people, but that we're self-made people, or at least we need to be. But that line of thinking comes from a misunderstanding of, of ownership. When I, when I think that my life is my own, I'm going to live it in the way that I want so that it serves me. But when I understand that as a, as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, my life is not my own. It never was, actually. Why? Because God created me in the first place. So he owns me once. And then as a believer, we've been recreated in Christ. So he owns me twice. You're never going to catch up. We're never going to catch up. And when I understand that, that my life is not my own because Christ has purchased me with his own blood, then and only then will I be more motivated to live this life that I've been given in the way that he wants so that my life serves him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 is one of my favorite scripture passages. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, here it is, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves. No longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I need to be reminded of that daily. Romans 14.8 says, if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. You have to do some serious gymnastics to say that's not what that's not saying. That my life is my own and I belong to me. Are you living a self-made life or a sent life? In the same way that Nicodemus couldn't recreate himself but had to receive new spiritual life from above, John the Baptist didn't create his purpose or his mission. He received it from God. Remember chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says, there was a man, what? Sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Here in verse 28, John told his disciples, listen, why are you so surprised? Why are you so surprised? You know that I've made clear from the very beginning that I am not the Messiah. I'm not the guy. I've been telling you that from the very beginning. From the beginning, I've been telling you about the one who would come after me, who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me, the one whose sandal strap I'm unworthy to untie. What about any of that that I've told you makes me or makes you think that I want to be ahead of him? It's never been about me, John says. It's always been about him. It seems that these disciples of John had forgotten about the time when he encouraged two of his other disciples to leave him and follow the one he was pointing at when he said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know what he's saying? That's the guy. He's the one. Go to him. He can give you what I can't. The whole reason I'm here is to show you that that's the guy. John wanted these disciples who came frustrated to him to do the same Leave me. You're wasting your time here. My time is up. So he said, listen, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. 
I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. I'm, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, but there's another voice that you need to listen to, one that's far greater than mine, the voice of the one that I've been preparing the way for, the voice of the groom himself, Jesus Christ. And that voice is coming from the mouth of this man that you want to silence. I'm not jealous of him, John is saying, essentially. I'm joyful that he's finally here. My work is done. He must increase, and I must decrease. Notice that John said, must, here. Remember how we talked about that last week with Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again, and he said, you must believe. There's no compromise in that. There's no compromise here either. He must increase. He, I must decrease. Jesus told Nicodemus, the son of man must be lifted up. As people who live in a culture where self-expression has become the non-negotiable absolute, this is important for us to hear. John the Baptist didn't say, I must increase and Jesus must decrease. No, he was convinced that there was no other option than to point people to Jesus. And he wanted his disciples to understand that as well. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. There's no other way. There's no other way. But we need to see this too. John wasn't devaluing himself as a person. He wasn't diminishing his role as a prophet. He was defining his purpose as a man sent from God. He understood his role. He knew his place. And when he had accomplished what God had given him to do, he happily, joyfully stepped aside so that he wouldn't confuse others or compete for what was rightfully Christ's and Christ's alone. You know what that is? The bride. The bride. He's the groom. I'm the best man. The reality for John himself was that even though he had the role of the best man for a while, you know what his identity was rooted in? Not being the best man, but being a part of the bride of Christ. Why? Because John not only told people about Jesus, he believed in Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said that among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist had appeared. That's, that's a pretty good endorsement from, you know, God in the flesh, right? And yet, even John the Baptist needed the Lamb of God to take away his sins just as much as his disciples that he was sending to Jesus did. Just as much as you do, just as much as I do. It doesn't matter where we rank among each other. We all come to Christ in great need. Now, I don't think there's a believer in this room that would willingly say, Jesus must decrease and I must increase. If you're saying that like constantly, we probably would question whether you actually believe, and you should too. But when we think about our lives, when you think about your life, currently the way you're living as a Christian, as someone who is proclaiming uh, Christ as Savior and Lord, what would your actions say? Would they say he must increase and I must decrease? Or would they say well, he should probably increase and I should probably decrease, right? 
Is exalting Christ in all things an absolute necessity to you, a non-negotiable to you, something you rearrange your life around, or is it more like a, a New Year's resolution that you know you'd benefit from keeping, but it's just way too much work to keep going on? He must increase. I must decrease. There's no room for he should probably increase and I should probably decrease. And there's certainly no room for I must increase and he must decrease. Don't miss what John the Baptist was saying here. There's great joy to be found in living with a he must increase and I must decrease mentality. This isn't a, a, a lifeless, begrudging obedience to some slave driver. This is joyful, life-giving obedience to the King of kings and Lord of lords. This isn't about self-deprecation. It's about self-identity. As one pastor puts it, it's about having a high view of God and an accurate view of ourselves, understanding where we fit. It's about rejoicing greatly in the heavenly bridegroom who's come to us in love and given his life for us in order to make us his pure and spotless bride. That's why John's words in verse 30 must become words that direct our own lives. He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist had a particular ministry in a particular place for, our, for our, a particular time. So do we. John prepared people for Christ's first coming. And when Christ arrived, John's ministry and his joy was complete. And now we've been called to prepare people for Christ's second coming. What, how? By telling them about his first coming, right? That's wrapped up in the good news of the gospel. Jesus came not to condemn sinners, but to save them from sin. By dying on the cross, bearing the, the full weight of God's wrath to, to make guilty people innocent, righteous, and to give them new and everlasting life. Jesus hasn't come for a second time yet. I don't know if you're aware of that. He's not here yet. So our ministry isn't complete yet. We still have work to do. Joyful work. Yeah, hard work. Work that takes endurance. But work that is propelled by hope. John's ministry was rooted in his identity as a member of the bride of Christ, and so is ours. John rejoiced greatly at the groom's voice, and so should we. You know what the groom's voice is? It's right here between these two covers. This ought to fill us with awe and joy. Yeah, it's hard. It's confusing at times. But God has not left us to ourselves to decipher it. He's given us his spirit who longs for us to know him and who knows him and allows us to do that. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. This is, this is a summary of how we should be living right now. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. Stop trying to grab these things for yourselves. That's what Peter's saying. Listen, you can't make you into anything better than what Christ can make you into. 
He rescued you from darkness, so proclaim his praises. Praising Christ and rejoicing in him go hand in hand. It's not believable to proclaim praises for someone else when we are grasping for that praise ourselves. Nobody's going to buy it. It's like a politician's ad. Making promises that nobody believes, right? Do you have a consuming desire to tell others about Jesus, or are you more concerned with making yourself known? Yes, we all want to be known. That's built into us, but listen, we can never be known by another human being as well as we can be known by God. And the beauty, the beauty is that he already knows us in, in exactly, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He sees all of our mess, all of our junk, all of, all of everything that, that would make other people turn and run away, and he came near. We don't have to, we don't have to work to make ourselves known to others. We are known by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's hard to have a consuming desire to tell others about him when the voice of our culture drowns out the voice of Christ in our lives. The very nature of social media is to gain followers to ourselves by building our own platforms and becoming influencers. And you know what it really is? It's so companies can make money and, and build themselves up. While you're on there scrolling, they're feeding your mind with these ads. You're the product. Like John's disciples, it's easy for us to get frustrated when it seems like everybody's liking and commenting on somebody else's post instead of ours, and we quickly find ourselves clamoring for attention. We're like, ooh, how can I craft something so that those thumbs, thumbs up start clicking and the hearts and the comments and all those things? Maybe this isn't a thing for you. Maybe social media is like, whatever. We all do this in a number of ways. Listen, I'm a middle child. I'm prone to clamor for attention. I can easily convince myself that I'm being overlooked. And then when I'm convinced of that, I can justify the need to make my voice heard. I'm over here. We're all prone to want to make ourselves known because we're born with a sin nature that makes us predisposed to putting ourselves at the center of our world. That's what sin does. It's selfish by nature. But whether it's on social media or in the workplace or in the classroom in our neighborhood, in our home, wherever it is, our own voice ought to be an echo of Christ's. An echo of Christ's and not a replacement of it. All of life is ministry for us as Christians and the purpose of all Christian ministry is to exalt Jesus Christ. So that means that if we claim to follow him, then we must point others to him and not to ourselves in every facet of life. That's not just true for us as individual believers, it's also true for us as a church. This church is Christ's church, right? We just read Colossians 1. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. We are his bride. He is our groom. We are his body. He is our head. That's why we come to hear the word and not the preacher. But that's also why we need preachers who will preach the word. Why? Because they're echoing the voice of God. When we hold to God's word, you hear God's word. 
I'm going to be known for anything as a pastor here, please let me be known for making Christ known. If we are going to be known for anything in this community as a church, then let us be known for making Christ known. He must increase and we must decrease. Christ must be exalted through his people because Christ is exalted above all people. Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. In these verses, John the Gospel writer essentially says, hey, John the Baptist was right. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And John the Gospel writer says that by echoing Jesus' own words about himself. Did some of those things sound familiar? If you were here last week, they should have. Back in verse 13, Jesus told Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except for the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here in verse 31, John the Gospel writer explains why Jesus must increase because Jesus is the one from heaven. He's the one from heaven. Jesus is the Son of Man who is from above. Therefore, he is above all. John the Baptist may have been sent by God, but he was still from the earth. There's a huge difference. But the eternal Father sent the eternal Son from heaven to bring what John the Baptist was able to predict but could never provide. New birth into eternal life. Jesus is above all. He's above all. There's nothing and there's no one greater. He's the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. From him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory, amen. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, far above every ruler and authority, every power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's above all because he comes from above. With that kind of authority, you would think that Jesus' words would carry some serious weight. But back in verse 11, Jesus told Nicodemus, truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. Here in verse 32, John the gospel writer again echoes Jesus' words. He testifies to what he's seen and heard. From where? From heaven. And yet no one accepts his testimony. John wasn't literally saying that no one accepted Jesus' testimony. It's another hyperbole here. He's already shown us in his gospel how John the Baptist and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel have all believed in, in Jesus and how Nicodemus is on his way. John's point is that people are predisposed to rejecting Jesus' firsthand knowledge of God the Father and all heavenly things because they don't believe that he came from heaven. Nicodemus struggled to believe it, and most of the other Pharisees outright rejected the notion that this man from Nazareth could come from heaven. The irony is that they thought that they were obeying God, but they refused to listen to the one whom God sent. 
the one whose very words were the words of God himself. Why? Because Jesus is God himself. In the Old Testament, God gave his Holy Spirit to his prophets so that they would speak his words, but it, wasn't, it, it, was, it was always for a limited time. They spoke God's flawless words while they were filled with his spirit, but they weren't flawless men. The words they spoke had to be tested to see whether or not they truly came from God. But the Son, the Son, we're told here, has the Spirit without measure. Chapter 1 told us that the the Spirit descended on him and rested. It remained. He, He stayed. Jesus' testimony is always true because he always speaks God's words. Always speaks God's words. And listen, he only speaks God's words. That's why the one who has accepted his testimony is affirmed that God is true because the testimony of the Son is the testimony of the Father is the testimony of the Spirit. They're one and the same. And anyone who believes Jesus agrees that Jesus' words are God's words. And anyone who believes, uh, who, who, who receives those words receives God himself. In chapter 12, we'll hear Jesus say, Anyone who believes in me believes the one who sent me. He's going to say this in in a few different ways throughout the gospel. If Jesus is above all because he comes from above, then his words also must be above all because they come from above. But listen, that doesn't mean that we just look through our Bibles for the words in red letters and pay attention only to them. If you have a red letter Bible, that's fine. But but don't, don't, don't narrow your focus only to listen to what you see in red. John didn't use a black pen and a red pen when he wrote the gospel. First red letter New Testament was produced in 1899. The first red letter Bible was in 1901. 18, 1900 years after scripture was completed. Red letters were introduced as a way to help people find Jesus' spoken words more easily, just like chapter and verse numbers were introduced somewhere in the 13th century to, to help us find our way through Scripture more easily. These can be beneficial things, but we can't get so narrow-minded that these become the only things. We call the whole Bible the Word of God for a reason. This is God's complete testimony. What are the two parts called? The Old Testament Testimony, the New Testament, testimony. We need them both because they both lead us straight to Jesus, who is the Logos, the living word of God. So if Jesus is the ultimate authority in your life, then his word has to be too. If you're not submitting yourself to the scriptures, then you're not submitting yourself to the Jesus of the scriptures. You may think you're following him, but you've made up some other Jesus. If you keep his words, his written word closed. You can't follow the living word of God if you're not following the written word of God. To neglect the scriptures is to neglect Christ, and to neglect Christ is to neglect God himself. To neglect the scriptures is to say, I must increase and Jesus must decrease. 
But when the words of the gospel echo through our minds and hearts, the thing that increases, it's not ourselves, but our joyful longing to know and follow Christ through his word. Even though Jesus is exalted over all as the eternal son of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come from heaven as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Philippians 2, the Son of Man did not come from heaven to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10. Those are two passages. that share the glory of what Jesus has done. The good news of the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ, is that even though he is the eternally exalted God above all, listen, he made himself low by becoming a human being and giving his own life as a sacrifice to remove God's wrath from guilty sinners who wanted nothing other than to exalt themselves over God. And he didn't just remove our guilt through his death. He also gave us his righteousness through his perfect life of obedience to the Father. And he gave us eternal life through his resurrection from the dead. How can we rejoice in this good news and not also joyfully submit ourselves to the rest of God's truth? When we think about how the exalted one humbled himself on our behalf, how can we not help but to also humble ourselves and give ourselves wholeheartedly in obedience to his word. Listen, it's one thing to recognize that that there are still times when we'd rather ignore Jesus and do what we want. We all feel that, right? It's another thing to actually ignore Jesus and do what we want. The first one is temptation. The second one is sin. But Jesus hasn't left us to follow him on our own. As the Father sent him, so Jesus and the Father have sent the Holy Spirit to unite himself to us forever. As believers, we've been, now been given the Spirit without measure. We have now been given the Spirit without measure as believers. The Spirit who is not only united to us, but also united to the Father and the Son in perfect love. Read ahead. Go read John 17. This is what Jesus prays for, that they may be one as we are one, not just with each other, but with God himself. The Spirit who leads us into all truth and gives us the desire and the ability to do what pleases God. And as believers who have the Holy Spirit living in us, we're united to one another as Christ's body, as his church, as his bride, so that we can speak God's words in the Bible to one another and spur each other on in joyful and humble obedience to him. And we can humbly and joyfully obey him because we know, we know that Christ will exalt his people through himself. Look at these last two verses. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. The Father loves the Son. He loves the Son. And he's given everything into his hands. That means that Jesus has the authority over life and death over forgiveness and condemnation, over salvation and judgment. And so the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. As believers in Christ, we have eternal life because the one who has the authority over life and death died 
on the cross in our place and rose from the grave. We have forgiveness because his sacrificial death paid our sin debt in full. We have salvation because he took the judgment that we deserved upon himself. These are wonderfully glorious realities that should humble us all. In a way, they should reduce us, not to nothing, but to praise. We can't help but but shout out glory to God. They should humble us because in his mercy, God has not given us what we deserve, death, condemnation, and judgment. And in his grace, God has given us what we don't deserve, Jesus Christ himself, the one who is from above, the eternal son of God. There's no room for boasting then on our part except to boast in Christ The great promise that we have as believers is that the exalted Christ will one day exalt us to be with him. He will lift us up, to use Jesus' language with Nicodemus, with him to share in his kingdom inheritance and to rule with him over all creation. We will live forever with the Father and the Son in the new heavens and the new earth, united to God by his eternal spirit. This is a reality that's coming. But we don't have to wait for that eternal life to begin because his spirit dwells in us now. Even as we continue on in this broken world, we can experience the first fruits of eternal life. How? We can have joy in the midst of sorrow. Many of you know that. We're learning that as a family. We can have hope in the midst of despair. We can have peace in the midst of turmoil. We can have rest in the midst of chaos because Christ is already present with us through his Holy Spirit, and he will remain. He's not going anywhere. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. He will remain present with us in this life until we join him in eternity. Eternal life is not something that we get at the end of this earthly life. It's something that the exalted Christ has given to us now through himself. But the one who rejects Christ will not see life. That person will not experience the eternal life that we as believers experience even in the here and now. Instead, what? What does John, uh, John say? The wrath of God remains on him. He's currently condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son, and he will remain condemned as long as he rejects the Son. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Or have you rejected him? Remember why John wrote the gospel. So that you would see the works that Jesus has done and you would believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. John isn't sitting there saying, you have no chance. You don't, not apart from Christ. But he's saying, here's the chance. Listen, to, he, listen he's echoing Jesus' words to Nicodemus here. Listen to what Jesus told him back in John Three sixteen through 18, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him, Jesus says, is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Would you reject that kind of love? 
Would you reject that kind of love? Would you turn away from the one who is sent to save? Hear Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Hear John's words to all of his readers. You must be born again, and you must believe. But these things were written so that you would do exactly that. To reject the Son is to call God a liar and to make yourself the source of truth. But God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. So don't exalt yourself. Humble yourself. And Scripture promises that Christ himself will lift us up. Don't reject the Son and remain under God's wrath. There's absolutely no reason to believe in the Son and have eternal life. Because sin lives inside us all, we're all prone to want to make everything about ourselves at the expense of others. But if we claim to follow Christ, then he must increase and we must decrease. Jesus is forever first. Jesus is forever first, and that reality ought to shape how we live as followers of him. He's the supreme one, and all the glory belongs to him alone. Christ must be exalted through his people because Christ is exalted above all people, and in his incredible grace, Christ will exalt his people through himself. True joy comes when Christ is in his rightful place in our lives, at the center of everything, at the center of everything. So may our voices echo his voice. May our lives give testimony to his life. And may we rejoice together greatly in our bridegroom until he returns for his bride and our joy is made complete. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending us your son. We thank you, Jesus, for coming to us. We pray that you would grow in us a heart that longs more and more to make less of us and more of you. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to do exactly that. You've given us your word to teach us how. And you've given us your church so that we can do it together. We praise you. May you be exalted in our lives here and now through all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.